Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Kaylin O'Connor, Associate Professor of Logic and Philosophy of Science at the University of California, Irvine. Her new book, Games in the Philosophy of Biology, is just out from Cambridge University Press. The branch of mathematics called game theory, of which Prisoner's Dilemma is probably the most well-known example, has been used by philosophers, social scientists, and others to explore many types of social relations between humans and also between non-human creatures. In her new book, O'Connor introduces the basics of game theory and its particular branch, evolutionary game theory, and discusses some of the central ways in which game theoretic models have helped explain the genesis of meanings of linguistic and non-linguistic signals, altruistic behavior, the spread of misinformation, and the origins of fair and unfair distributions of benefits in society. She also considers some of the drawbacks of game theoretic models. Her short introduction makes a major area of social scientific investigation accessible to readers without mathematical background. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Kaylin O'Connor. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Well, hello, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking about games and the philosophy of biology, and, and I hope we'll also get a chance to talk a little bit about your, your book, which came out just late last year on uh, the origins of unfairness, right? But we'll, we'll sort of focus on, on this one for the most part. Um, before we get into the actual um, you know, chapters of the book, maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself and, and your interests in philosophy and then... Um, you know, how this book came about? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a philosopher of biology and the social sciences. And a lot of what I do is use modeling methods, especially game theory and evolutionary modeling to try to understand things about either animal behavior or more recently, especially human behavior. Um, So that's the kind of broad picture on my work. And then within that, I've worked on a lot of topics as I was saying to you before we started, recently I've been doing a lot of work modeling misinformation and the spread of false beliefs. And then, as you mentioned, I have this other book on uh, the cultural evolution of unfair norms and conventions having to do with gender and race. So apply this to a lot of topics. Um, Now, this particular book is part of the Cambridge Elements series in philosophy Mm -hmm. of biology. So that um, Michael Roos and Grant Ramsey are the editors of that. And they wrote to me to ask whether I could write something in this vein. And I thought this is a great opportunity to try to bring together this literature that I've been dealing with throughout my career in a kind of coherent, easily readable, short book that would be good for teaching or people who are interested in a new subfield of philosophy. Yeah, and it, it, I, I agree. I think it certainly does that. I mean, it, it, um, I mean, I'm to some extent familiar with, 
with the games and the, and the philosophy of biology, but this really uh, does a really good job of, you know, I thought of, of laying it out for somebody who might not have any, any sort of background whatsoever. Um, so maybe we should start with that. I mean, what, what is game theory? I mean, there's a number of different, um, you know, concepts there, you know, players and strategies, Nash equilibria and so forth. And, uh, replicator dynamics. Um, mm-hmm. So, could you could you just give a, a bit of a description of what game theory is and how it was developed to um, explore what you what is called what are called strategic scenarios? Yeah. So, game theory is this branch of math first really developed through economics, and it's essentially, as you said, meant to represent strategic scenarios. Um, so it sort of started by von Neumann and Morgenstern, who wrote a book in the 40s and then developed by Nash in the 50s. And a lot of its early applications were to things having to do with war and politics. Um, so these sort of really conflictual strategic scenarios. But it's actually a very broad field, and it can be used to represent basically any scenario where you have multiple actors at play. So individuals that have some kind of interests, things that they want to happen and where what they do matters to each other. So where you have um, some kind of influence between these actors on each other. Uh, so that's that's the kind of most basic overview. Okay. And what are, um, uh, like, I, I probably this will come up again, the, the notion of equilibria, um, mm-hmm. you know, whether Nash equilibria or something like that. Could you say something about what those are? Sure. Why don't I say a little bit about how this area goes about analyzing strategic interactions? So what you usually do is you start by building a game, which is a representation of some kind of interaction. And games usually involve a kind of short number of elements. So there are players, which represents whoever is involved. There are strategies, which represent whatever those individuals can do. There are payoffs, which represent what they get given what they do and the other people do. And then there's information, which represents what all these individuals kind of know about the scenario that they're in. And as we go along, we'll, we're going to talk more about examples, so I won't go into an in-depth example yet. Um, so you build this mathematical structure that includes those four things. So that's a game. It could represent something like you and I are trying to coordinate or we're trying to communicate or we are bargaining over something. And then you analyze the game. So in the tradition of game theory from economics, what you do is ask, all right, suppose these players are rational. And what I mean by that is that they want to get the best stuff for themselves, the most utility or payoff for themselves. Well, which strategy would they pick given what they know about the structure of the game the individual that they're playing with, and what they want. Um, And that analysis involves usually looking for what you just mentioned, uh, equilibria of various sorts. So the Nash equilibria is like the most sort of widely used solution concept in game theory. And what it means is a set of strategies. So each of the players picking a strategy where they can't switch what they're doing and get a better payoff. Um, And the reason these equilibria in the games are so important is that that essentially represents a kind of stable strategy. So if you're doing something and I'm doing something and neither of us can do anything else and do any better for ourselves, we sort of don't have a reason to switch. So often what you do is you build the game and then you look for equilibria. And there are other kinds of equilibria you might look for as well. I won't go into all the details, but then you find them and then you take that to give you some kind of prediction about what a rational actor and possibly about what human beings would do in that sort of strategic scenario. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, So are these, um, I mean, one of the, one of the terms that, that comes up, you know, not just in your book, but in, in others as well is that, you know, that these game theoretic models somehow explain the phenomena that they're talking about, the interactions, you know, whether cooperative or not or whatever. Um, could you say a bit about what, what explanation is, you know, means in this context? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> this gets into a lot of, uh, sort of deep issues about what models are and what they can tell us about the world. 
So often what people will do is say they observe some sort of behavior in the world, a strategic behavior, um, like maybe you and I, without calling each other, always meet for lunch at noon every day in the same spot. Um, so you might observe that and ask, well, why do they do that? Why tomorrow doesn't Carrie show up at 11 and, or Kaylin show up at one or something? Why do they always meet at the same time? Um, so you might be trying to explain something like that, a behavior, and then you can explain it by dint of a game. So you ask, well, what kinds of things do they like? What payoffs do they get? Uh, what behaviors are available to them? What strategies do they have? What do they know about these strategies, these payoffs, and the other person? And then you can use that to build some sort of explanation. Well, the reason they show up every day is that they get a payoff from being together and they have expectations about what the other individual will do. So that's the kind of explanation you can develop. Now, of course, there's a lot of questions about whether these you know, always simplified models of humans and human interaction can in right. fact explain any particular scenario. Yeah, right. Um, well, that, that sort of, I mean, one of, one of the things that, that you go into is, is the idea of evolutionary game theory, which, which is a particular uh, application of game mm -hmm. theory in the more generic sense. Um, could, could, what is evolutionary game theory as opposed to just, you know, anodyne vanilla game theory? <laughs> we might say like more traditional game theory. I, I would call evolutionary game theory, a, a branch off of game theory. It's sort of its own area of study. So this was started more by biologists. So notably John Maynard Smith, um, who took game theory and said, well, you know, humans are in these strategic scenarios, but we also see animals and even, you know, plants and bacteria and all sorts of living creatures in strategic scenarios as well. And maybe we could use similar models to try to understand, explain, or predict their behavior. But of course, we don't expect, say, a bacterium to sit down and think to itself, well, what is my bacteria friend going to do tomorrow? And what do I like to get? So they don't have these kind of rational calculations. So instead of predicting or explaining behavior via this you know, assumption of rationality, let's assume that all these actors are evolving instead. And so the first model said, well, what will happen if we take a population playing a game, and then suppose they evolve via natural selection. And then later models have kind of expanded that framework to look also at cultural evolution and uh -huh. learning. Okay, right. So it's, it's not just the evolution of a species, but it's also an individual's development over their lifetime, for example. Yeah. So, I mean, if we want to think of the three kind of main timeframes that evolutionary game theory models. The longest one is kind of evolution of behaviors by natural selection. Then it also looks at the cultural evolution of behaviors on this kind of cultural evolutionary timescale, which is usually a little faster. It's not just individual learning, but it involves, you know, transmitting behaviors, say from parents to children or peer to peer and like the slow accidental develop uh, development of, uh, new adaptations and behaviors. And then the sort of shortest time scale also looks at learning just within the lifetime of an individual and how you might learn to play a game. Okay, good. Um, so let's talk about particular games. I mean, you, you focus on games basically in, you know, communication in various ways, you know, how, signaling systems set up and how you might get meaning bootstrapped out of cooperation of that sort. And then there's also um, what you call the pro-sociality applications, uh, which, which kind of gets overlaps a bit with the unfairness book and, and different social mm -hmm. structures there and how people coordinate their behavior in that way. So let's, let's talk about communication first. Um, so there's um there's the common interest signaling game. That's the, the I guess, the basic one. Um, could, you, could, could you explain that one? Yeah, and if you don't mind, I'll just give a little context. So if you were 
writing a kind of standard review of evolutionary game theory, it's a little funny that I start with signaling and communication. You'd usually start with pro-sociality, you know, stuff like, uh, we'll probably talk about this later, but the hawk dove game and the prisoner's dilemma and the stag hunt, the stuff about like, how do we uh, evolve to treat each other well? The reason I wanted to start with um, signaling and communication is that this area has really been developed a lot in philosophy and philosophy of biology. And there are all these deep questions about meaning, which are, you know, these long traditional questions in philosophy. And so I thought it would be nice to spend kind of more time on this. So yeah, I start with um, the common interest signaling game. People sometimes just call it the signaling game or even the David Lewis signaling game. So the basic idea is that you have two individuals who um, will do well to communicate with each other. So maybe I'm going to picnic with my mother and uh, I don't know whether I should bring my umbrella or my sunscreen. And I call her on the phone and I say, well, what's the weather like there? And then she tells me. So she wants me to know what the weather's like there. I want to know what the weather's like there, but I can't observe it. Only she can. Mm -hmm. And then she can give me information. And by doing that, she can benefit both of us. So I can bring umbrellas or I can bring sunscreen and then we'll both do better as we have our picnic. That's kind of the basic setup. These two individuals um, who will like, would like to give information between them. Uh, So The common interest game is so called because in this game, the assumption is that the individuals want the same thing. And in particular, they want to match the behavior of the receiver, the one getting the information with some state of the world. So we assume the world could be different ways. It could be sunny or rainy or all sorts of different ways. Um, The sender can observe this state and send a signal to the receiver, and then the receiver can act but the receiver can't observe themselves. And then the goal is to get that action to match the state, to bring umbrellas in the rain or sunscreen in the sun. Is that good? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's good. I mean, that's, that sounds like your basic, um, uh, com- you know, Shannon communication really, or send a receiver, I should say, just generally. Um, There's, yeah, so it's sometimes called the sender-receiver model, and it is yeah. also bears some, you know, similarities to Shannon's basic information theory setup where you have, you know, a source and a channel and a receiver. Right. Well, it's a signaling game because what's passing between the sender and the receiver are signals, right? Um, and that brings in the philosophical you know, interest and maybe obsession with, um, with meaning, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Because obviously you want, in in the case you give, you want your mother to say things that you understand uh, and you, you want them to be sort of clearly transmitted to you um, so that um, this coordination, you know, between what she sees and what you bring uh, can take place, and and so one of the one of the interesting applications I know of this has been um, the uh, uh, explanations, or um, at least using these models to show how meaning could arise, you know, from nothing, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was, you know, I think part of Lewis's, you know, what you mentioned, Lewis signaling, um, and it's certainly Brian Skirm's. Um, could you could you say a bit about about that whole aspect of these of these signaling games, and also um, you particularly in, in bring up issues about vagueness and ambiguity, right? So mm-hmm. particularly features of language that um, that you think. Uh, can be explained, um, you know, within the same modeling framework. So could you say a bit about how, first of all, meaning is supposed to arise in these signaling games and then how these particular features of language might arise or, or maybe one of them anyway? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, the kind of interesting history of the use of the signaling game in philosophy goes back to natural language skeptics like Quine, who said things like, well, how could we get linguistic conventions 
without linguistic conventions. So if we need to say something like, well, let's call this a sweater, we already need words to be able to establish that convention, right? And so there was this skepticism about whether natural language could just emerge or evolve on its own. And so David Lewis in you know, 1970 wrote Convention, where he introduced this common interest signaling game. And his idea was, well, we can think of uh, the equilibrium in this game as representing linguistic conventions. And there are different ones because we can use different signals to mean the same thing. So there's different possibilities. It's kind of arbitrary where we end up. But his idea was that we can end up at stable equilibria because we have mutual expectations about what each other are going to do. And we have you know, shared interests, right? We want to communicate. And if we establish a convention, I am now kind of expecting that you expect me and I expect you to keep sticking with that convention. So we had this kind of idea that precedent and expectations could get these linguistic conventions off the ground. Then Brian Skirms took this same game and said, well, let's just put this into an explicitly learning or evolution context and showed that if you get a population playing this game or individuals learning to play this game, they'll evolve to a signaling convention. So they'll just be able to do it. And this was really taken to refute this idea that we should be skeptical about the emergence of um, natural language. Because in fact, in these models where you have these super simple learners or even an evolutionary model that could represent bacteria, you get the emergence of essentially linguistic conventions in Lewis's sense. So this was yeah taken to kind of answer that skepticism. Mm-hmm. Now, after um, you know this move in the field, a lot of people started looking at more depth at the common interest signaling game and saying, well, what else can we do with this that's interesting? What else can we learn about it? Um, so you mentioned signaling in, um, or sorry, ambiguity and vagueness. So this is actually what I wrote my dissertation on was using a variation of the signaling game to look at things like the emergence of linguistic vagueness and also ambiguity. This version is called the SimMax game. Um, It's a game where you have these states of the world, just like in the normal signaling game, but where they're related to each other. So they're supposed to bear some kind of similarity relationships, which means that some actions will be appropriate to more than one state. So if we return to the weather example, you know, it's not just that it's rainy or sunny, it's that there's a whole, you know, in reality, a whole uh, almost continuum of states between really rainy and horrible to like light drizzle to kind of gray to a little sunny to super sunny to the hottest day ever. Um, And so you can model that kind of uh, continua of states and say, well, there's going to be a bunch of states in there where if I bring an umbrella, it'll be appropriate for a lot of them, but then other ones that it's less appropriate for. And so um, I use this and some others have used this game as well to say, well, why would we get vague signals in a game like this um, where uh, the same signal, sorry, the same state might be represented either by like, this is misty or this is rainy. So there's some... um, borderline cases between terms. Uh, And the answer for me was something like, well, it's because when we're learning, if we want to quickly learn about a bunch of states like this, we tend to generalize. So if it's really rainy and we learn that the word rain is a good way to describe that, we generalize that not just to the only state we learned it in, but many other states. And whenever, you know, so I was able to use models to show that whenever you generalize your learning like that, you're going to have vague terms emerging even though they're um, suboptimal in this kind of game. Others have looked at uh, sort of suppose you have noisy learning of different sorts. So like Michael Franke has looked at models like that and showed that you get vagueness as well when you have this kind of signaling game with the structure to the state state base, sorry, to the, um, to the states that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, right. Um, uh, so, I, so in a, in a way, the 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 ambiguity or the the vagueness, I should say, is a reflection of the fact that there are essentially vague states of the world. You know, where well, it's not quite 
not quite sunny, it's not quite raining, or it's not quite raining, but it's not clear or something. And so we're kind of forced to categorize uh, where the world itself doesn't give us nice, clear borders. Yeah, so certainly where you see vagueness arising, it is in these cases where the world doesn't give you nice, clear borders usually. Instead, it's usually these kinds of cases like you know, the classic uh, Sorides paradox where um, you're going between a full head of hair and bald, and there isn't just some very clear place to draw the line, or from a heap of grains of rice to absolutely nothing. And when does it become not a heap, right? So right. you have that kind of structure of the world. But um, what's interesting is that, so this economist, um, I believe his name is Barton Littman, proved that even when you have that kind of state, vague signaling is always suboptimal. Uh, from a rational standpoint, you should not be vague. It still hurts your payoffs to be vague in those sorts of situations. So it still left this kind of explanatory demand that... Um, why do we still see vague signaling? Is it just a limitation of our cognition? So some people argue, yeah, it's just because we're kind of limited. You know, we can't tell the difference between all these really fine green states. Um, or, you know, my explanation that I was alluding to was, no, it has to do with a beneficial way to learn, where if we learn in this beneficial way, we're going to get vague signals, but it's kind of worth it to learn quickly about all these states of the world around us. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, uh, Okay. <laughs> right. Good. Good. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Cause I was wondering in what way it, it's suboptimal, you know, if, if that's just like the way it is. Right. Um, yeah. So the way it's suboptimal is that, you know, you assume in these models, which is often a reasonable assumption that for each state, there is an action that's best, even if it's only best by the teeniest little bit. And that's, uh -huh. As soon as you have that situation, then you wouldn't want to be sending multiple signals at different times in the same state. You wouldn't want a borderline case. You would want to have a signal that clearly tells the person you're communicating with what the best action is for this state. Okay. And so it would be suboptimal to be sometimes sending this signal, sometimes sending another, and in that way, sometimes getting a better action and sometimes getting a worse one. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. I see. I see. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, well, how about costs? I mean, the other type of signaling name is the conflict of interest one where uh, there's a cost to signaling, right? Um, and uh, can you can you say something about, about those types of games, signaling games? Yeah. So um, conflict of interest or costly signaling games were... So these were developed more in economics, but have been used by a number of philosophers, biologists, philosophers of biology. Um, what they suppose is that the sender sending the message and the receiver getting the message don't have necessarily the same interests. So a classic example is something like um, job applicants and companies. So if you're someone at a company and you have a job applicant telling you about their quality you don't necessarily have the same interests as them. You know, you want to hire the very best candidate, but even a kind of poor candidate wants to get hired. And so they have some reason that they want you not to know the true state of the world necessarily. So there's a conflict between you. Another classic case in biology has to do um, with sexual selection signaling. So if you are a male peacock, you want to be uh, considered to be the highest 
quality mate. But if you are a female peacock, you have some conflict of interest because even a low quality mate will want you to mate with them. Um, so those are the kind of scenarios you model with these conflict of interest signaling games. One of the key takeaways from this literature is that um, you can still get communication even when you have this kind of conflict. And mm -hmm. the way you often get it is that there's some kind of cost, and in particular, a differential cost where high quality senders pay a lower cost to signal than low quality senders. So in economics, uh, you know, this job market example I just gave, their sort of classic example, and I mean, you can argue with the example, but hopefully it's illustrative of the concept, is that, all right, when it comes to going to college, maybe it's not as costly for high quality candidates to go to college and get good grades, whereas it's costly for low quality candidates to go to college and get good grades. And so if you see that someone has gone to college and you are a firm hiring, maybe that's not important just because they've gotten training, but it's also a signal to you of the quality of the person you might hire. So that's how the cost is supposed to allow communication to flow from these senders and receivers, even though there's some conflict between them. Okay, good. Um, so how about uh, social life? Like these are, these are the, the, again, where you said, although philosophers have contributed probably more to uh, the signaling game applications, uh, the sociality applications have in the field itself been a bit more prominent, um, uh, you know, with Prisoner's Dilemma or uh, well, Hawk Dove, you mentioned that one. So could you, could you give an overview a bit of, of how game theory and evolutionary game theory have, um, uh, have been applied in, in social life? Yes, though, can I ask, so yeah. I think some of the most interesting stuff in the book is the stuff about, you know, using signaling games to understand these questions about meaning, especially having to do with uh, um, deception and yeah. uh, sort of, uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about that. I just, I thought maybe um, you would want to do more, but yeah, I'm happy to, you know, because people lie, they send misinformation, you know, I mean, you just have another book on misinformation, right? Um, fake news. Um, yeah, so maybe we can just back up. I'm happy to do that and just um, say a bit about how game modeling game theory can illuminate all the misinformation that we are, that we are swimming in these days. Yeah. <laughs> well, so uh, it probably can tell us some about that misinformation, but the stuff that I think is really interesting is this literature from philosophy of biology having to do uh -huh. with how we understand um, deception and misleading content in the biological world. So, and I'll just lay out why I think this is so interesting. This isn't something is this, I've done work on. Like, but, is this is oh. this like a um, a uh, an animal that 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 imitates the signal of something something else? Yeah, so that's a great example. Um, so a really famous example has to do with these two species of flyer, fireflies, uh, yeah. Photinus and Photurus where um, one of them has a mating signal. So the females go down into the grass and they send a particular signal and the males come down and mate. Um, the other species has learned to basically perform that identical mating signal. But when the male comes down to mate, this other species eats them. So it, it feels very natural to say that they're sending a deceptive signal, that the original signal means something like, I'm a female willing to mate. And then this other species is sending that, but then, you know, using it to eat the male, right? So that feels like deception. Um, but the question is, how do you define what it means for an animal, and in this case, an insect, to be deceptive? So when you're talking about humans, often intent plays a really important role in what we think of as deceptive or misleading content. Was I trying to mislead you to get you to believe something false? And in particular, was I trying to mislead you to benefit myself 
So that would be a case of deception, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it's strange to say that these uh, fireflies are thinking to themselves, okay, I'm going to get this male to come down here. He's going to think that I'm a female of his own species, but I'm a female of another species. So they're, they're clearly not thinking that, right? Um, so how do we define deception? And so one way people tried to go was to say something like, all right, well, is the information in the signal um, leading the male to basically have the wrong belief about the world. So there's this Mm -hmm. signal. um, The male has a belief that there's a female firefly down there and goes down. And so it's something about the information. Um, But the problem is that whenever that signal is sent both by, you know, the sort of real females and these deceptive females, from an information point of view, it actually does mean both things. It both means there, you know, is a female of my own species down there, but it also mean could mean there's a female of another species down there. Um, and so if you try to just use information to say what the meaning is, you can't really get to this concept of deception or misleading. You're just like, well, they're using it. And therefore, by using it, it comes to mean that thing, if that makes sense. Um, so philosophers of biology have tried to get around this by looking at things like both information content in the signal, but also the payoffs of the different individuals involved. Um, do I, when I send a signal, does it change your belief about the world in a misleading way? And does that end up harming you and benefiting me? Um, but there end up being all these difficulties as you try to come up with a really clean notion of what it would mean to be deceptive. And in fact, my opinion is this literature can't really come up with a very clean notion of deception in the biological world. It kind of reflects back on our own notions of deception and shows that in some ways they're not very clean either. Hmm. It sounds a bit like, you know, the problem of misrepresentation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. and disjunctive content. Um, Yes, it's related to that for sure. Oh, it is. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because it does sound like, like, you know, they're not misleading. They're just sending a signal with this content, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, It ties back to all this stuff about, I mean, mental content and when, uh, you know, you can be misrepresenting something or are you just, you know, representing two possible things? Right. Well, I, I guess when you, once you take the communicative intent out. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that in, in human beings are the notion of, of communicative intent solves a lot of problems, although in another way, it doesn't solve anything. <laughs> <laughs> it just sort of, you know, labels the problem. Um, and it seems like these models just show, you know, kind of pull away the curtain and say, yeah, when you don't have recourse to communicative intent, as with these fireflies, how, how do you explain this difference? Um, and you yeah. can't just say intent, <laughs> you know, you're kind of lost. Right. And so you're left with, I mean, basically the two things you end up left with are information content. So in the Shannon sense, in the information theory sense, what content is there in the signal? So that, and then other things having to do with payoffs um, or what some people like Uh, Jonathan Birch have done is trying to use the game structure to say something like, well, the real meaning of a signal has to do with how close, what, what the closest equilibrium is in a game. Right. So Uh if the actual system you're seeing in the world is very close to an equilibrium of a game, um, that's the real meaning. And then these other uses are the deceptive or misleading ones. Um, or other people have tried to say, okay, it's the sustaining uses. So this relates to, um, teleosemantics. It's the uses that get it to evolve that are the, that's the real meaning. And then the uses that would undercut its evolution. These are the deceptive or misleading uses. Okay. Okay. Does this all avoid the notion of function that is so fraught, um, both well, in philosophy, biology, and in teleosemantics. I mean, so when you're using a game and an evolutionary model, um, you know, it's it's clear what 
you know, what payoffs are leading to the evolution of different behaviors, right? So you can just say, here's the payoff that causes this signaling behavior to evolve. And uh-huh. I think you, you might avoid some of the worries about um, the kind of more thick notion of what a function is. Okay. Um, all right. So prosociality, um, all right. Prosociality. <laughs> altruism. Uh, so yeah, one of the more famous games, you know, that, you know, people will know about is, is like prisoner's dilemma, right. Um, and trying to, uh, figure out if you should rat on your, on your fellow part, on your partner or, uh, or not rat and whatever. Um, could you, could you say a bit about, um, yeah, the mo- the game theoretic explanations of altruistic behavior and cooperative behavior. Yeah, so the prisoner's dilemma. So this is the most widely studied game in game theory and in evolutionary game theory, um, and it's taken to be, as you said, a representation of altruism and altruistic behavior. So the story people often tell to motivate the game is: okay, you have two prisoners. Um, they're offered this opportunity. They can either uh, cooperate by not uh, ratting out the other person, or they can defect by ratting out the other person. And the idea is like, if they both cooperate, they don't rat on each other, they're going to do some jail time. So they'll maybe they'll be in jail for a year. Um, if they both defect, so they both rat on each other, then they're going to be going to jail for longer. Maybe they'll be in jail for five years. But if just one of them rats, then the rat is going to get set free and then the other person is going to sort of take all the blame. Maybe they'll get sent to jail for 10 years then. Um, So the structure of this game and what makes it a dilemma is such that if they had to choose between both cooperating and both defecting, they would pick both cooperating, right? It's better for them both to go to jail for one year than to both go to jail for five years. However, from an individual perspective, you always want to defect. So from my individual perspective, if you cooperate with me, I will get less jail time by defecting. I'll just get to go free if I defect. If you defect on me, I'll get less jail time by defecting as well than if you defected and I cooperated. So individually, everyone wants to defect. And that's the unique Nash equilibrium of the game. And under standard evolutionary models, that's what you expect to evolve as well. And so there's this big puzzle, um, which is, well, why do we see so much altruism in the real world? Humans are immensely altruistic, and many, many other species are altruistic as well. Uh, So why do we see the evolution of cooperation where I do something that's worse for me but better for you in this kind of strategic scenario? Now, the most uh, overarching answer is that it has to do with um, correlating the strategies that come together. So different ways that cooperators end up meeting cooperators and defectors end up meeting defectors. And there's a bunch of ways that that can happen. But whenever that happens, it ends up being that cooperators also get the benefits of cooperation and defectors get the detriments of defection. And so in that kind of scenario, you can have cooperation or altruism evolving even though in the kind of base game, it's individually harmful. Okay. Um, and um, you sort you also you go into various ways in which people can, uh, well, what you call handshakes or what are called secret handshakes or green beards. That was a new one for me. Um, uh, in which people can can signal certain things that they're going to do to certain people who know those signals, and that can somehow make it easier to get the sort of outcome that you want? Yeah, so there's a number of mechanisms that get this kind of situation where cooperators or altruists ends up meet, end up meeting each other. Um, so just to give a quick list of them, I mean, uh, disproportionate kin group meeting or kin selection can end up with us that, you know, essentially altruists give birth to altruists and are altruistic towards them. Uh, and so they tend to do quite well. So that's just one example. Um, 
there are certain things about the ways social networks work, where if you learn to be learn your behaviors from your neighbors and they tend to be altruists, then altruists tend to start meeting each other. Another thing, which is what you just brought up, is this thing about signaling that uh, one way for cooperators to start meeting each other rather than defectors is to use signals of some sort to communicate, I'm a cooperative type. Now, the trick with that is that everyone would like to be thought to be a cooperative type right? When you have that kind of scenario. So even if you're a defector, even if you're a cheater, you would want others to cooperate with you. And so you'd be inclined to communicate, I'm a cooperative type too, cooperate with me because you'll benefit from that. So the trick is to have, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I I was going to say the trick is to have some way to make, to guarantee your signal, to make it so that, um, it really does mean that you're an altruist or a cooperator. And so you mentioned green beards. These have been found in some species in the real world. These are essentially evolved traits that correlate with altruistic or cooperative behavior so that um, if an organism in the species has that trait, uh, the other ones can know who are cooperators can know to cooperate with them. I mean, that can only kind of last temporarily because then maybe a defector evolves that trait too. But it's called a green beard because the idea is something like, suppose everyone who really was an altruist had a green beard. It'd be pretty easy to, for them to walk around and see each other and just cooperate with each other. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, because when I was reading this, I, I was thinking of dog whistles, you know, the different ways in which uh, politicians can uh, talk about, um, you know, often some sort of a religious l- meaning or something like that, that somebody like who is not part of the group mm-hmm. will um, won't pick up, right? And, and that mm-hmm. kind of signals to people that, you know, I'm, I'm one of you and you can, you can trust me, you can believe me and not, and, and cooperate with me, presumably. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that people really do engage in a lot of this kind of in-group signaling where you have to have the right kind of knowledge to know what the right signal is. But then once you get it, you might be especially cooperative or altruistic or helpful towards those people who know it, right? And so, um, yeah, sometimes in the social world, that's called not a green beard, but a secret handshake. So something Uh that you learn um, that tells you, okay, this is the kind of person that I'm going to cooperate with. Yeah. Um, One thing that you you bring up also is is this idea of spite, you know, Mm -hmm. or, um, I mean, generally people who say, well, people who will uh, basically go against their own self-interest in order to hurt somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's not uncommon either, right? I mean, that doesn't seem to make sense. I, well, how, how, does, how does game theory make that sort of common behavior make sense? Yeah, so evolutionary biologists realized a while ago, you know, people like Hamilton realized that uh, – there's this kind of dark cousin to altruism, which is spite. So the idea with altruism is that it can evolve if altruists tend to benefit other altruists. The idea with spite is that it can evolve if spiteful individuals harm non-spiteful individuals. So basically your strategy type can do better than other ones, either by kind of doing better, helping each other, or making the other ones do quite poorly, harming (laughs) those who aren't like you. And then- Uh your type is doing better. Uh, And so the the idea with spite is that it's in some way similar to altruism. If there's some way for spiteful individuals to harm only those who aren't spiteful, then it too can evolve, even though on the face of it, it looks quite irrational to take a payoff hit yourself just to harm someone else who's not like you. Right, right. Um, and there's also, I think, I mean, this gets into psychological issues, which, which mm. are not part of the model, which is just the satisfaction 
Uh, and, you know, I hate to, I mean, I, I'm not speaking for myself, of course, but, um, yeah. you know, you see people getting, getting pleasure out of that, right? There, and that yeah. ever, you know, enter in the fact that, you know, there's, maybe that gets into the payoff. There's a, there's a psychological payoff as well as uh, a more ordinary payoff. Well, so this actually gets into these kind of different definitions of altruism and also of spite, where usually in biology and when we're thinking of these evolutionary models, the way you would define altruism doesn't have anything to do with your psychology. It has to do with your literal kind of fitness payoffs. Um, Am I taking an action that makes me less likely to have offspring, but makes the beneficiary of my action more likely to have offspring? Well, that's our definition of altruism, where with spite, the definition would be, am I taking an action that makes me less likely to have offspring and makes the recipient of the action less likely to have offspring, maybe even more than I will harms more than myself, right? So that's this kind of biological definition, resting in fitness. And then there's, as you're saying, these kind of psychological definitions where um, a psychological altruist might be someone who, uh, oh, I'm going to get this wrong because I'm less versed with this, someone who, who wants to benefit others, right? Who actually enjoys, could enjoy benefiting others. And so in fact, they get some they could get some psychological benefit from behaving altruistically, even though the structure of the prisoner's dilemma game, we'd be saying something like, well, they've been harmed. In another, on another level, you might want to say, well, they're not harmed. Actually, they're getting this other kind of benefit. Um, and when it comes to spite, you could have an individual who's in some way like physically or materially harming themselves to harm another, but likes doing it. They enjoy doing it. And so there can be, um, you know, a kind of, thing to realize here is that there can be this disconnect between our representation of payoff when it means fitness, like what do you kind of materially get and how does that change your chances of reproducing or passing on your behavior or strategy and mm -hmm. payoff when it comes to something more psychological, more related to these traditional notions of utility. What do I kind of act to get because I maybe enjoy it or want it for some reason. Right. Right. Well, this kind of gets to, I mean, I want to get to the, uh, the bargaining and, and unfairness stuff, but this mm. sort of naturally leads to the, the final chapter on, uh, where you, you look at the methodology itself. You kind of step back mm. and say, you know, why, why are people, do people use game theory so much and, and what is being missed, right? How is it possibly, you know, distorting the way we think about these sorts of things. Um, could you, could you say a bit about, you know, what, what, yeah, I mean, why is it so pervasive and what are the biggest problems, I suppose, with, mm -hmm. you know, using game theory in these, in these ways? Yeah. So, I mean, it's very pervasive because in a lot of ways it's been a very successful epistemic tool. Um, it has explained things that have been hard to explain. It's provided a theoretical grounding for all sorts of experimentation and other empirical investigations that's been really useful. Um, it's been predictively useful in some cases. So I would say the reason it's so pervasive is that it, it does pretty good in a lot of cases. But I think there's just this bigger issue, which really relates to the use of simplified models to represent complex social interactions. So the behaviors of humans, as we know, are just tremendously complicated. And even when we're using game theory to represent um, non-human organisms, they're often very complicated too. And evolution is really complicated. You know, these evolutionary game theoretic models often give these really simple rules for how evolution is happening that don't track all the sort of details of what really happens in an evolutionary system. So the pervasive issue or worry is that you can build models and you can study them, but how do you know that you're studying the right thing, that your model isn't somehow ill-tuned to the kind of scenario you're looking at? And so this is a worry that comes up in a lot of um, philosophy of modeling. So that's a kind of sub area for a philosophy of science for people who aren't familiar. 
which really asks these questions like, well, what can our models tell us and how can they mislead us? Um, now, the kind of answer I usually like to give is that these models can be misleading, but what you really want to do is look at the particular model you're building and the particular phenomena you're trying to use it to explain and the particular arguments you're making using the model and ask, is the model telling me something in this case? So I think you really have to look often at the specifics because in a lot of cases, models can very uncontroversially help us epistemically, act as epistemic tools, act as parts of the arguments we make when we're trying to build new knowledge. In other cases, you might want to say, well, this model isn't actually that well-tuned to the kind of argument I'm trying to make with it, or it leaves us with some you know, deep uncertainties about this situation. So that that's the kind of big picture that I like to have in mind when thinking about this literature, its problems, but also the ways it can be used in all sorts of um, scientific and philosophical arguments. Yeah. Um, well, one of the, I mean, speaking of complicated and fraught issues, actually, um, you know, is the development of inequality and uh, mm. the persistence, right, of various um, uh, unequal, unjust, you know, social systems or, or systems where the distributions of the payoffs are very unequal. Um, and we call that unjust. Um, uh, could you, could you maybe say a bit about the way you use the, and this kind of goes into your, the, the other book a bit, but it, there's obvious mm -hmm. overlap here. Um, could you say a bit about you, how you would explain, you know, this, these sort of uh, the, well, the title is, are the origins of unfairness. <laughs> could, you, could you explain a bit about how, how the models do that? And then, and then, you know, these caveats, I mean, in terms mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. you know, how limited really is the explanation that, that these models can provide of, you know, systemic, persistent, um, unjust social structures? Yeah, good. So, yeah, so in um, Games in the Philosophy of Biology, I have a, a unit on the use of bargaining games. And then I have this whole other book, The Origins of Unfairness, that really looks at bargaining games and using them to understand fairness and unfairness in human societies, and especially the cultural evolution of norms and conventions that aren't fair, and especially the cultural evolution of norms and conventions that aren't fair to people of certain genders, races, uh, religions, cultural backgrounds, etc. Um, so the kind of, I, 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 if you don't mind, I'll just give a little bit of the kind of philosophical backdrop here, is that a number of people in philosophy and some in economics of, as well have used these games, bargaining games, to try to explain fairness. So these human norms of treating each other fairly and also to some degree human feelings that fairness is the right and moral thing, that equal splits are what we ought to be having. Um, and so this game, the bargaining game, is one where you have two actors they have some kind of resource they need to divide. Let's say it's a pie. That's just a silly example. Um, <laughs> and there are many agreeable divisions of the resource. So they would both prefer more pie than no pie. And so there are a lot of ways they could divide it. So they could do it equally, but also one could get more, the other could get more, one could get way more, one way less. Um, and this kind of scenario arises all the time in the real world where we have various things that we would split, whether it's money, whether it's different kinds of resources, even whether it's free time in the household. Right. So this kind of game represents that sort of scenario. Now, there has been a history showing why equal splits are special in this game. And essentially, the equal split is the only symmetric equilibrium. So it's the only outcome of the game where the two players can do the same thing and get a good outcome. So 50-50 is the only perfect division of this pie where everyone's getting the same thing, right? So I, I won't go into all the details, but for various reasons, this makes it special from an evolutionary standpoint. And in all these evolutionary and cultural evolutionary models, you do tend to see fairness emerging more often than unfairness for this reason. 
And so various people like Brian Skirms and Ken Binmore and Jason Alexander have used this to argue, well, this is why we have justice. This is why we have fairness in human societies and why it's so often a norm. Now, um, other people, and then me especially in this book, have wanted to kind of turn this argument on its head a little bit and ask, well, okay, we do have fairness norms, but if you look around, things are pretty unfair, and this has become, (laughs) you know, especially like to women in philosophy, it's obvious sometimes, Uh, but also, you know, like when it comes to race in the U.S., of course, this is very, um, uh, there's so much unfairness, oppression, discrimination, and this has become very relevant recently. Um, So, what I do is look at situations where you take the same kind of model, you have bargaining uh, and some cultural evolution toward a norm or convention of bargaining, but just point, you know, really elaborate on this observation. Once you take this model and you break the population up into groups, and these groups could represent something like gender or they could represent race, um, everything changes. The cultural evolution is totally different. And now fairness is not actually expected. Unfairness is more likely to emerge because you have these new group structure in this asymmetry. And at the heart of it is the fact that when you have different types of people and everyone can recognize those types and use them to shape how they behave, then when two people meet, there's this extra bit of information, like you're a man and I'm a woman, or you're black and I'm white, or, um, you're Christian and I'm Muslim, right? And that extra bit of information makes it so that in the evolutionary models, you often see unfair norms and conventions Why? arising. Why? So it it basically makes unfair equilibria efficient where before they weren't efficient. So if I don't know anything about you and we have to divide something, the only equilibria that allows us to do this with no information and without messing up is this 50-50 split. But once I know something about you, I can know, well, you're the kind of person who gets less and I'm the kind who gets more. So this bit of cultural information really changes it. So now that you can have efficient divisions where we manage to perfectly split this pie, but one person gets less because we both knew what kind of type of person they were and the other person was. If that Does that make sense? It, it does, but it kind of presupposes the problem uh which is how did those associations get started? It, yeah. That's, that's sort of where that's, well, that's the question. It presupposes. So in the models, I presuppose that you have categories. So I look less at the emergence of how you get these kind of social categories that become at least in some ways meaningful, like the kind of category that we would use to change our behavior, like gender and race. But if you mm-hmm. have that, basically in these models, you just get unfairness kind of emerging on its own endogenously. And it just happens, it can happen even through these kind of accidents of history. Now, I'm not saying that I think this is the real way that unfair norms emerge. But in the model, just the fact that some people of this sort happen to make, you know, more accommodating bargaining demands at one point can mean that later on their whole group ends up just being the group that makes low bargaining demands and ends up being discriminated against. Mm. Um, Now, of course, in reality, there's a lot more at play having to do with different historical disadvantages. Um, And so I also look at a lot of models where you assume, okay, one group started off maybe less powerful or there were fewer of them, or they already had some kind of historic constraint in what they could do strategically and Mm -hmm. look at how then you get these unfair norms emerging in those situations. But you don't have to actually add anything. You can start with totally symmetric groups, nothing special about either of them, and still get discrimination just kind of popping out on its own because of this division into groups. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, yeah. Um, I could see how there might be some, you know, kind of biases, I don't mean a prejudice, but just a, a bias in the system that you kind of, that, that then, that then gets um, amplified. Um, but uh, yeah. if, if you did start out with something, well, yeah. Um, uh, we are, we're out of time, I'm afraid. Okay. Uh, this is the problem. Uh, <laughs> so um, if we're going to coordinate our behavior, I think we need to, um, 
we need to end the uh, the recording. But I really enjoyed this, and I wish we could have kept going. And I just will encourage listeners to um, to look at both books. I mean, one the the one the game games in the philosophy of biology, which kind of goes over all this stuff, and then I think the one we started to talk about a bit at the end, uh, the unfairness book. Um, but uh, thanks, thanks again for for your time and talking with New Books and Philosophy. I I enjoyed this. It's great. Oh well, yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay. Uh, bye bye. <laughs> bye. You've been listening to my interview with Kaylin O'Connor. She's an associate professor of logic and philosophy of science at the University of California, Irvine. We've been talking about her new book, Games in the Philosophy of Biology which is just out from Cambridge in their Elements series. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books and Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you again for listening.